All right, so two things. Actually, really just one thing. But So last night they had this thing with the little kids here. It was like Christmas in July. did this whole Charlie Brown peanuts thing. And did you guys... Uh, it, was, it was pretty cool. And when I say peanuts, I don't mean like elephants eat peanuts, but like Charles Schultz, the cartoon peanuts. And I, and I really felt bad for like any of you who are having like problems and you need some therapy because they had it here for five cents. You last, laughed the least out of any service over that joke. I thought it was, I thought it was very clever. Golly. Okay, whatever. Um, we, are, we are doing baptisms on Labor Day weekend, and if you're interested in being baptized, you have questions about being baptized, uh, right out through the back to the side of the lounge, there's a little classroom back there, and we're doing a little info meeting about it. If you go to the info meeting, it doesn't mean you have to get baptized, but it's just if you have questions or things like that, they would love to talk to you about those things. Just kind of head out to the back, make a right, go in there, they'll, they'll talk to you about it. It'll be great. Uh, because we have some things that we do need to talk to you about before you get baptized, you know, what we think baptism is and, and how it kind of works. If you are uh, new to Element, welcome. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this right now, and on the front of it, oh, our folding machine. There we go. See, and I fix it. For this. I'll put this one right here. It's already been fixed. Uh, and I'll, you can color this, so if I get really boring, you know, you can just grab some crayons and have at it. Don't fall asleep. It's really distracting. I look up and someone's like this. Okay, so just look down and act like you're coloring before you fall asleep. That would be great for me. Uh, on the inside, you'll get a bunch of notes and some questions that go along in the message. On the back, there's some announcements as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Uh, click on Live, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you'll get server notes, questions, and verses, and all that goes along with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for reading of God's Word? Second Kings chapter 5, verse 1. And it says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be humble before you, uh, to trust you in all the things and all the ways that you call us into, that we would be childlike in our faith, trusting our great and good Father, and that then we would live lives that bring you great glory. Amen. Have a seat. Uh, So we are in a series called Coloring Book All-Stars, hence the decor and the sermon notes and all that. It's all about famous people in the Bible that if you had a kid who had a Bible coloring book, you would find these people in there. Uh, These are the ones that have like large in life stories that surround them. We have been looking at it also in the fact that most of these people who we venerate as being so great and wonderful were also total tools, just like us. So we're looking at how this all goes together. Uh, Today we're going to look at the only non Israelite throughout this entire series. Uh, you may not have heard of him. If you have, good for you. Uh, his name is Naaman. story takes place in 2 Kings chapter 5, so you can open your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, here are the coloring book pictures I have for you to compare against this week. Uh, this is Maggie. She's eight. Apparently all Middle Eastern people have black beards and black hair. She's not far off. Okay, it doesn't look like that. Uh, this is Grace. She's 12. Same. So he has orange skin over here. He's, he's been tanning. Okay, he's been tanning. Turns your skin orange. It's like the, whatever. This one over here is yellow and green skin. And this is the thing. I didn't really look up what leprosy, because he has leprosy. We'll look at that a little bit today. Uh, I didn't look up what it looked like because I wanted to actually eat dinner that week. So I just, but apparently it turns red because they both colored it red. It's independent of each other. So whatever, okay. 
So if you get bored, you can color and see if you can match up to something as good as that. These pictures will be in the back through the rest of the series. You get to check them out and, and things like that. Uh, the book of Second Kings is going to, or First Second Kings is going to cover a little over 400 years of time. It's 971 to 562 BC. Uh, it, what it does is it encompasses the powerful and wealthy days of the close of the United Kingdom under a king named Solomon. Then right after Solomon, another king arises named Rehoboam, and the kingdom splits. It fractures. And so Israel becomes ten kingdoms in the north, the northern kingdoms, and two uh, kingdoms in the, or two in the two tribes in the south, which is the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is usually more faithful to God. It's usually more wealthy and a little more powerful. The northern kingdom is going to fall in 722 BC. The southern kingdom will fall in 586 BC. And what the book of First Kings does is it records Israel's spiritual response to God. God had called them into a covenant relationship with him. You are my bride, my chosen possession. This is who you are. God calls them into relationship, but it also shows how unfaithful they were and their need for God to bring redemption. Eventually that comes in Jesus, just like as we need our redemption, which is found in Jesus. So this is the story, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. So this story takes place in what's called the Third Dynasty. It's a time when many people in the northern kingdom have been captured. So it's about 849 B.C., but it still hasn't fallen yet. They're still there. The nation of Assyria keeps coming in. They're making raids against the northern uh, kingdom in Israel. Uh, one of the greatest leaders who did this is a guy named Naaman. Naaman is a military man. He He distinguishes himself over and above all the other generals that are there because he's a master strategist. So he's a military guy. And so if he came up and there's like a a hill over there and they said, we need to take that hill. Well, go get Naaman. Naaman, take the hill. And Naaman would go when he would take the hill. There's a battle to be won. Go get Naaman. Naaman, win that battle. Naaman would go when he would win that battle. He rises in the ways of politics to become one of the top generals of the land. Now, your Bible says the word Syria because this is modern-day Syria, but in Hebrew, the text actually calls it Aram. Aram. 2 Kings 5 starts off with the view of Naaman's life at its peak, when everything is as it should be, the best it's ever been. This would be like uh, sync has retired for the last time, and they're no longer around. Your favorite television show has gotten renewed. It's on the bubble, and it comes back. California gets rain. Okay? Everything is as it should be, life at its peak. But at the end of chapter 5, verse 1, you read, He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Okay? Now let me show you what's going on in this because it's really interesting. When you read, he was a great man. This is the word ishgadul. Everybody say ishgadul. Ishkadul. Uh, Ish is the word for man. If you look at the book of Genesis, uh, man is named man. And then when he names Eve, his wife, he named her Ishah. Uh, which comes out of his name, showing that they are equal. So it's Ish and Hishah, man and woman. This is an Ish, a man, but he is a Gadul. And Gadul is means weighty with significance. He is a self-made man. He has done everything to raise himself up. He has a reputation. Everybody knows who he is and how good he is because of what he has done. That's an Ish Gadul. They are very, very rare in the scriptures. Uh, someone with this weight and this reputation. This title is given to four people in the Bible. It's given to Gideon in Judges 6, uh, to Jephthah in Judges 11, to David in 1 Samuel 16, and also to Naaman. It's why I've made him a coloring book all-star because he is an Ish Gadul. And the writer 
writer gives you so much information in that first verse. He is an Ishkadul, but he has leprosy. Now, in this culture, if you have leprosy, you'd be known as what's called a sarer. And sarer means an outcast, one who is stricken. There is tension and paradox because you can't really have an ish gadul, someone with all this weight and reputation, and yet also be an outcast. The two things just don't go together. Naaman's life, it is at its peak. He has just defeated the armies of Israel. He has killed Israel's current king. He returns to Syria, Aram, his home country, with a lot of influence, a lot of fame, a lot of power. And there's a lot of irony here because Naaman controls troops. He holds the lives of thousands and tens of thousands in his hand. He can plan, he can bribe, he can intimidate his way through anything except the reality that is now showing up on his skin called leprosy. It has said, Naaman, you may think you're all these things, but you are mortal. In the ancient world, you had leprosy, it equaled death. There's nothing you can do about it. And all of Naaman's brains and courage and power and connections, they're useless because he's going to die unless something happens. And that is just the first verse. All kinds of tension in the story. Verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. Now the word for little girl, it is the word katan na'ara. Okay, katan means like the least, the lowest, uh, the nothing of everything. Na'ara is the name for girl. Like na'ar is named for boy and na'ara is girl. But the least, the littlest, it's in comparison to the Ishkadul from verse 1. You have this little girl who literally means nothing. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. This little girl is probably dragged from her home and her parents and her life. Any hope of marriage, of having children of her own. If Naaman's at the top, she is at the bottom. She is a female. She's a slave. She's a POW. And who put her there? Naaman. Naaman. Exactly. But also, in a wider context, God is the one who also put her there. The beauty of the situation is eventually the life of Naaman is going to hang on the words of this little oppressed slave, this little girl who is nobody. It's going to hang on her words. And it's interesting, it seems that God always humbles us before he uses us. He puts us in a position where he can use us, where it strips us of everything, and we simply become katan na'aras or na'ars. We become humble, nothing in this. When all of Israel is eventually defeated and hauled away into captivity, God tells his people how they're supposed to conduct themselves in Babylon. In Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord in its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is a sentiment that God always wants his people to live within. You are blessed. Why are you blessed? To be a blessing. That's why we're blessed. You go all the way back to Abraham, and God calls Abraham. He says, you know, I'm going to make you into a chosen people. Why are you a chosen people? To bless others. Exactly. It's not to say, oh, look, I'm so much better. I'm chosen. God chose them to be a blessing to the entire world. I think this slave girl maybe understands that, because you get to verse 3. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, that's Israel, he would cure him of his leprosy. So this little girl doesn't stay silent. She actually says, you know what? If he was there, this guy could actually cure him. And so she's talking about this prophet. His name is Elisha. Now, Elisha is like the protege, the disciple of who James talked about last week, Elijah. This is the younger version. This is the one that comes out. This is 2.0. 
Hey, that, 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 that's Elisha. And I can't imagine Naaman's reaction to all this because Elisha is an Israelite. In Naaman's mind, he has just proved that the Israelite God is nothing because he defeated their armies. This is why the first verse tells you that the Lord had given him victory over the armies of Israel. But he thinks God is nothing, and that's why he won. And to think they have to go to somebody like this, it's just beyond him. He is an Ishkadul. He has reputation. And wait, why would I ever go there to that little country that I just beat the snot out of? And th- this would be for Naaman, like, say, during, back during the Gulf War. This would be like George Bush going to Saddam Hussein's personal physician for help. Like, he, he's backwater. He's back. Why would I even talk to him? This would be like today. You've got a militant Palestinian going to the heart of Jerusalem asking for help. And maybe his wife just encourages him, or maybe Naaman gets really desperate because he really has no other option. Verse 4, so Naaman went in and told his lord, that's the king, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And this is the new one, since Naaman killed the old one, by the way. Okay. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. This is 750 pounds of silver. It is 150 pounds of gold. And ten sets of clothes, you can interpret that yourself. You're welcome. Okay, so what you notice is that Naaman and the king of Syria, Aram, doesn't have a clue about God or how to proceed. All that they can think is that, okay, kings are in control of whatever magic this is that's going to heal Naaman, so I'll send him down there, and the king will take care of the magic. The, the king of Syria, Aram, writes a letter to the king of Israel. I think this is the funniest letter ever. Verse 6, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman. Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. It's like, what the what? What? How am I supposed to do that? What? So here's a picture. Okay? Uh, this is Aram up here in the, in the upper right. You, maybe you might be able to see that little arrow points to Samaria over there. So the story starts really in the defeat of Israel. Then it goes up to Aram. Now it's coming back to the land and the nation of Israel. The god of Aram at this time is a god that's called Ramon. Uh, Ramon is the thunderer god. This is a picture of him. Uh, they believe that later he turns into Zeus, okay, the thunderer god. The king of Aram's name at the time is Ben-Hadad. Ben means son. Hadad is another name for Ramon. So the king of this country goes by the term son of God. Son of God. Now, when you get to Israel, Israel's king, is, his name is Jehoram. Uh, Jehoram means uh, Yahweh is high and exalted. Uh, the God of Israel is Yahweh. That, that's his name. So you've got two countries with their own kings and their own gods. The God, Ramon, is not able to cure Naaman. So the son of God sends his general to a country of another girl that was a slave that recommended it to him. It is irony and humor. And I know you read it in English and you don't get it. You don't think it's funny. But the Hebrews who would read this would be like, that is hilarious. Yeah, just just like that. The line is, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you, name and my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. The king of Israel, he is not happy about this. Like, what am I supposed to do in this? You know, he's a corrupt coward, as was his father, so he freaks out. Verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes, which is okay because he got ten new sets, okay? And said, am I God to kill and make a lie that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Now, first thought is, try the decaf in the morning, right? Because you are totally freaking out and you don't need to do that. You just got some gold and some free t-shirts. That's a good day. At least I think that's a good day, all right? Jehoram thinks this is a pretext for war, that the king of Aram is sending this guy over. Oh, heal him. Oh, you can't heal him? Well, we're going to come in and crush you because you couldn't heal him. But the point is the king of Israel, according to those in Syria, or Aram, is supposed to be the representative of Israel's God. 
Now, the king wasn't meant to be that person. Everybody in Israel was meant to be that person. Everybody was meant to be the representative of who God is. Every person who called themselves a believer in Jesus Christ is meant to be a representative of Jesus. How's that going? Yeah, yeah, kind of like the king of Israel. Got it. So the miracle so far is that the pagan king thinks that Israel's God can heal Naaman. Jehoram should have been rejoicing about this. A pagan king has more faith in Israel's God than the king of Israel. Think of Naaman. He takes the trip, gets back on his horse or his donkey or whatever it is, and goes back down to Israel. He has faith. It seems like the unfaithful has more faith than the people who are supposed to be of the faith. Everything is on its head. It's great storytelling. It's great storytelling. So the king's freaking out. He's scheduling appointments with his therapist for five cents. See what I did there? Yeah, all right, all right. And Elisha, God's prophet, hears about it, and he shows up, verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, in the scriptures, this is Ish Elohim. He's not an Ish Gadul. What makes this guy great? God. He has a relationship with God. He is a man of God. That's where he finds his identity. Ish Elohim, man of God. When I heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes, dummy? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. So Naaman hears this. He goes to Elisha's house. He takes his entourage with him. This would be for us like a large motorcade with horses and chariots and tanks and helicopters. Didn't have helicopters. I know, I know. Okay, but it's it's that kind of thing. It's the war engine. The war engine that had just wiped out a ton of Israelites shows up on the doorstep of Elisha. Now, Elisha probably lives in a little simple hut, a little house of some sort. And what you got to picture is Naaman is outside. The Ishkadul with his war machine. He has shown up in his power and his glory and all that he has done. And he expects Elisha to come running out and bow before such an impressive person. But Elisha doesn't. Elisha hangs out in his house. You know what he does? He sends his intern out, his non-paid intern, out to go talk to the Ishkadul. says, and Elisha, the you know, Ish Elohim sent a messenger to him, that's the Ish Gadul, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. I showed this a couple weeks ago. It's a picture of the Jordan River. You can find much nicer pictures of the Jordan River, but again, I like to show this one because, hey, the leeches want to attack you, and there you go. It's right there. Now, what just happened to the people originally hearing or reading this story is unheard of. You got Naaman. He is an Ishkadul. You show respect and honor to one of those. He has a war machine. If you don't respect the Ishkadul, you show respect for the war machine. You know, but the prophet doesn't even leave his house. Wash in the Jordan River. That's what he says. That's what he says. I mean, is that supposed to be some type of joke? Naaman expects Elisha to come out and do a song and dance, to wave his hands, to, to say some funny words, to grab Tinkerbell and go... The fairy dust will heal you. We got, it, we got it all figured out. Verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He expects a southern preacher to come out and go, Brother Naaman, in the name of the Lord God of Israel, I hereby tell you, be clean. He expects Elisha to come out like Benny hit him. Bam. Right? And he falls down. That's what he says. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? So what, what has he got against the waters of Israel, really? He's got that picture right there's what he's got. Can I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. 
Naaman starts belittling all of Israel. And again, the Jordan River is muddy and small in comparison and not very glamorous. Uh, here's a picture of the Falls of Abana. Uh, this picture is some pictures of the rivers in Damascus. And this is an artist's representation of what they thought Naaman probably had in mind when he thought of it. Much, much nicer, okay? Much nicer than, than the other things like that. He's offended. Why? Because the last place he expects to find God is in the Jordan River. But this is a story about God finding him, not him finding God. I mean, he is an ishkadul. I mean, he is, he is weighty. He is important. He should be baptized and washed clean in the ocean, not in the next heavy rain that falls and fills up the baseball field down the street. You know, it's, it should be just clean in the ocean because he, again, is an ishkadul. I mean, Naaman is going to die, but hey, at least he's got his pride intact. He's got his priorities straight, apparently, of some, some sort. You know, he wants something how he wants it. He probably thinks, I have humbled myself enough. I've come from Aram. I've talked to the king, the new one, since I killed the old one. I went to the prophet's house. Look at all of these things I have done. And how dare they tell me to go wash in the Jordan River. It all reflects his character. And what you have to ask when you see, you've got to stop here and say, do you see any of yourself in Naaman? Not wanting to do something small, something seemingly meaningless, because it would get in the way of you doing what you want to do. It seems that God is always offering and putting small things right in front of us. And it seems the small things count. I mean, think about this. Putting your cart away at Costco. Put your cart away at Costco. You pull in, you can't find a parking spot, because, oh, no, there's a car right there. Put your cart away. Simple. Pick up your trash. Look around for somebody. I mean, even something simple. Walk in this room. Look for somebody who you've never seen before and go say hi. It's simple. It's small. Step outside yourself. Look for someone who maybe is alone and, and needs a little bit of hope. Step alongside them and talk with them and, and love on them. Look for somebody at your job that other people ignore. Seek them out. Talk with them. Do the small thing. Give comfort to somebody who has none. I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus says it's hard for prideful people to live in the kingdom of God because we make it all about ourselves. It seems that the simple, humbling things make us grow. God has been saying to Naaman and to you and I all along, I'm going to meet you, but it's going to be on my terms. And it's the way that, the way that I, I said it. And usually it's a place that we least expect. It's why a lot of people look at Christianity and they ridicule Christianity. Oh, that's for weak people. Christianity is a crutch. I'll tell you, if Christianity is a crutch, you don't know Christianity. It's not even a crutch. It's like the hammock or the one of those riding things you get at Walmart. You know, it's, if it's just a crutch, you don't understand it. I mean, all of ourselves is immersed in the person of Jesus Christ. It's everything. And humble people are the ones who understand that. We get it because God usually meets us in a place where we least expect it. At, at the end of a doctor's scalpel, at the bottom of a bottle of pills, the bottom of a bottle of booze, when everything is gone and just torn to pieces, God comes and he meets us there. One of the hardest things for people to realize is that it's usually our humbleness that enables us to hear God better in our lives. I mean, when we walk around and think we got all, God all figured out and it works exactly this way, we, we're on shaky ground. I think God always longs to speak to us, but I don't think we really want to listen. Because we want it the way that we want it. There are so many things that God has already said that we do not listen to because it doesn't fit our plan. How about when God says, love your neighbor? We say, oh, I love my neighbor except for that one. Right? Uh, Anybody but that one. I'll love everybody else and that's good. God says, have no other gods before me. Right? And we go, oh, yeah, I got that. Except when I really want to do something and God says, no, I'm going to choose me every single time. How about this? God says, sex is for the confines of marriage. We go, what? No, God didn't say that. Then you walk out of this room and just forget I ever said that at all. It's like, I don't know what he said. 
How about be honest and don't lie? And then your spouse goes out and buys a new pair of jeans and says, does this make my butt look big? And you go, no. <laughs> it's okay. That's, that's an okay one. I'm going to let you off on that one, okay? <laughs> I want you to stay married. <laughs> or when it says something like, uh, you know, don't steal. And we're always trying to find ways to fudge our taxes and, and things like that. The point is, sometimes we expect God to show up and like burn a bush and do all these crazy things. And yet we want to listen to the simple things he's already said. The story of Naaman is a story of learning humbleness and realizing God's way really is the best way, even when it goes against our sensibilities. So verse 13, But his servants came near and said to him, that's to Naaman, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Now, the line in the Hebrew is really tricky. Different translations will translate it differently because it kind of means if, if the prophet had asked you or told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done that? Wouldn't you have done that? If he told you to prove your ishkadulness, to earn the healing, you would have thought it was okay. If God asked you to win a battle or take a hill or conquer a nation or give millions, you wouldn't hesitate. If he asked you to do something to demonstrate your ishkadulness and win renown, you would do that. But that's not what God has asked you to do. Why not trust him even when you don't understand what God is doing? Why not become humble when he tells you wash and be cleansed? And this is one of the reasons I believe that Elisha didn't come out of his house. Not because he was trying to disrespect Naaman. It's that God wants to humble Naaman so he begins to live differently. And we don't know how long Naaman stood outside of Elisha's house. Okay? We don't know if he pitched his tent and just got all angry and sat there for days. Because really, you've got a guy who has lived his entire life building his reputation and his honor, making himself a self-made man. His entire life is like that. And then you've got the other side, which calls him to a place of humbleness. And that can take a long time to turn around. But step after step after step in Naaman's journey, it's this idea that you need to become humble. And so what happens is he finally listens, verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, the Ish Elohim, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, you don't see this in English, but in the Hebrew text, what this says is he became Clean like a little, like the flesh of a little child. The word little child is katan na'ar. Again, na'ar because he's a man. So you have this katan, the least, the little. What it tells you that he had faith like a child. He became humble. And when that humbleness is something that he lived in, God healed him. It's amazing to see the humbleness and the childlike faith that this guy now lives in. It says, then he returned to the man of God, the Ish-Elohim, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And now Elisha comes out. And he, Naaman, said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. You see, what Naaman says here is huge. This is ginormous. At this point in world history, everybody believes there are localized deities. Each area had their own god. If you're in Syria or Aram, there's a god of Syria and Aram. If you go to Moab, there's a god of Moab. If you go to Egypt, there's a god of Egypt. If you go to Lebanon, there's a god of Lebanon. You went to a region, you would say, what's the god of this place? You would offer sacrifices to that god. That's how people understood things, except in this little tiny corner of the world, in a country called Israel, they believed that God had revealed himself to us. And these people started to say, there is one God, and he is the God over everything and everybody. And when Naaman says this, he's beginning to realize that God allowed him to win the battle against Israel, that all those people who are their prisoners are prisoners for a purpose, and he is one of those reasons. 
This is a gigantic new concept. And so when Naaman says, behold, I know, he's enlightened. What the Jews have been saying is now starting to make sense to him. He takes a giant step forward in his childlike faith. Then he takes a little step back and he says, so accept now a present from your servant. This is a way of him trying to pay off the miracle to not owe a debt. But what Naaman has to understand, just like us, is that God's gifts are free. They are free. You don't pay them off. You don't earn them. They are gifts of grace. Verse 16. But he said, this is the prophet, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he, Naaman, urged him, the prophet, to take it. But he, the prophet, refused. Uh, So what now happens is Naaman kind of lets that go and moves on to another step. Verse 17. The Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. So he says, can I have some dirt. And I'm, and I'm sure the prophet's like, well, you know, you're clean like a little child. You sure you want to mess up that skin? No. So shovel over there, dig it up, take as much as you want, take it back with you. That'll be it. Now, why does he do this? Why does he do this? Because Naaman thinks the soil of that land is connected to the God of that place. Naaman wants to go home and he wants to pour the dirt back at home. So when he worships the Lord, he can worship God on God's dirt. He just said, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel takes a huge step forward, and then takes a step back because he thinks God can only live on the dirt in Israel's soil. So does he get some things right? Yes. Does he get everything right? No. No, he doesn't because he's so different from us. (laughs) The passage is loaded because he transcends his worldview. He has this childlike faith. I believe in this God. I want to follow him. But he still has a way to go, just like all of us. He's starting to understand the larger idea of the gospel, of God seeking and saving him and bringing him to a place of humbleness, of changing his entire life so he becomes humble. But some practices are still stuck in his old habits. So what does this have to do with this? I'll give you two things. First one is this. The story of Naaman and Elisha is a story about a God who is worshipped anywhere. Anywhere. We sometimes act like and believe that God is only in certain places. Like, oh, church, that's sacred space, and everywhere else is not. Like our jobs aren't sacred, or our neighborhoods aren't sacred, and our normal places aren't sacred. Sacred, and yet they are. God is everywhere. All space is sacred. It isn't that God is at the church service and not in your office or he's with two or three praying and not in the carpool. All space is sacred. Is God worshipped there or is God worshipped here? The answer is yes. God is worshipped there because nobody owns this God. He's accessible to everybody. God is just as present when you're doing laundry as when you are in a church service. This is a good message for us to live in and understand. It is not about location. It is about heart orientation, where we are aware of. So let me show you something that happens. It's amazing in this passage in verse 18. This is what Naaman says to the prophet. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. My master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. What he says is, I have to go back, and I work for The son of God. That's who I work for. And when he goes in the temple, a lot of historians believe at this point, Ben-Hadad was very old, and so he had to go with him, and he would lean on his arm. And so Ben-Hadad kneeled in the temple of Ramon. Naaman says, I've got to kneel too. It's not that I'm worshiping this God, but I have to kneel. This is where I live. He says, will God forgive me? Will God forgive me? What's Elisha's response? Oh, buddy, you better buck up and get it right. You better tell him what's going on. No, Elisha says, verse 19, he said to him, go in peace. Go in peace. Naaman says, part of my job is going into that temple of Ramon. It is complicated what I am headed into. 
And Elijah didn't say, well, then get out of there or come live in Israel with all the good people like me. You can have a hut just like this. He doesn't say that. What he says is go in peace. That's the word shalom. It means right relationship. Everything's all right with you and God. God's favor, God's blessing, the peace of God rests upon you. Naaman says, I might have to bow down. Elijah says, go in peace and the blessing of God. God is with you. His response is about God's mission and calling for all of us. I mean, how many of you would say you work in the Temple of Vermont? You work in a place like that. Every day you're in situations, and they are hard situations. How do you balance your job and these people and Jesus in the midst of it? If you, if you follow Jesus and you, any length of time, there will be places where things get kind of sticky. Because it's not just bow down, but that you are there for a purpose. You're there to be the light And the reason of who God is, to show people the real God by how you live, by how you speak, by how you treat others, by how you worship in every place that you are. Do you think some of Naaman's new childlike faith didn't rub off on Ben-Hadad? Do you think it doesn't start to maybe make a difference? And maybe you work and live among a people who believe totally different than you. Maybe they crack a joke, and it's totally degrading, and you don't know whether to laugh or not. I think the operative question is, is it funny or not? Okay? What do you do? I mean, do you know what the Temple of Vermont looks like? It could be your family. It could be your school. It could be your workplace. And you have to love and be bonded to people who you see doing things, and it is just destroying and killing them. And it becomes hard and fuzzy and tense. And people say things like, well, if you just follow Jesus, he'll tell you what to do. Well, yeah, but sometimes because you follow Jesus, I mean, things get really complicated. Because you end up in a place, not because you compromised or rejected God's ways, but because you took Jesus' call seriously to go and live in a place that's hard and to love people in the way that Jesus calls you to love because that's where God wants us. How is the king of Aram going to ever hear about Yahweh unless somebody tells him? And who is going to tell him? Naaman. Naaman. How are the people who you work with ever going to hear about God? You. That's how they're going to hear about it. That's how God works in the world. Second thing, give you a high-level view of this because everything relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, we understand that Jesus also went to the Temple of Ramon. Okay? That's, I would call that this entire world that we have messed up. Okay? We call this the Temple of Ramon. He comes here to sinful men and women. He eats with prostitutes and sinners. We know salvation because Jesus was willing to do something that all the religious people of Jesus' day say he shouldn't have done. Oh, don't go there. Those are the horrible people, the sinful people. Where else should God go? Where else should we go? That's the point. You know, we, like God, should be seeking the lost in the temple of Ramon. What we have to understand is our sin made us sarer. We are outcasts. We were cut off from relationship with God. We were stricken because of our sin. And who comes to heal us? Jesus comes to heal us. You know, Jesus comes, he takes everything that separated us from God and each other and takes it away and restores relationship. We, one of the things we have to understand in this is if you are an Ishkadul and you seek after that, you're never going to be able to live in the kingdom of God because it's all about you. What God does when he saves us is he takes us from this ishkadul and he makes us katan na'ars na'aras, like little children, faith like children. And in that, we become men and women of God. We become the people of God. Why? Because we trust God enough 
to live in the hope that he calls us into. God is the only God. He is for everyone. He has revealed himself in Jesus. You do not need dirt. You don't need some crazy hocus pocus. You need faith. It's faith. John 4, 23 and 24. Jesus says, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See, Jesus comes. He takes on our sarer. He takes on our outcastness, our strickenness. And he gives us his righteousness because of what he has done. So we can be clean. We can be like a katan na'ar or a katan na'ara. So we can then become people of God. It is all what he has done. And it comes down to this idea of humbleness and childlike faith. The the humbleness doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. But we are never going to live in the grace and the goodness of God unless we actually become these humble people. Living in childlike faith. This is one of the reasons that we talk about communion every week. I mean, you break that cracker. Why? Because Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Why? Because Christ's blood was shed for you and me. And so we take all of our ishkadulness, all of our pride, all of our arrogance, and we lay it down at the feet of Jesus. And we become clean like little children. And we become men and women of God who live in childlike faith, because our God is deemed to save us. It's a beautiful story. And that story is a story of the entire scriptures, over and over and over. Uh, the band's going to come up, as they do. We invite you to take communion. As I said, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you guys need prayer, I mean, maybe you have lived your life in a place of self-sufficiency, where you think, I've got to figure this out, I've got to do it, you know, uh, uh, when I get cleaned up, then I'll, then I'll really start you know, worshiping with other Christians or I'll join a gospel committee when my life looks better or something like that. And God says, no, no, I'm the one that cleans you up. I'm the one that does these things. And Ishkadul has no place in the kingdom of God. You know what it does? Children. It's one of the things Jesus says, let the little children come to me, have faith like a child. Not that, not that our understanding of God doesn't grow and we understand things more and more, but our faith in our God, our Father, is like a little child has faith in their dad. I mean, I don't know if you remember when you were a kid, uh, if, if, you, if you had a dad that hung out and played with you. Dads do crazy things with their kids. My, I fell off a pier when I was a kid. And my dad's like, I'm like two miles out there. My dad's like, that's my kid. You know, I, I watch one of my friends, uh, Caleb, Caleb and Becky, tomorrow, they, they have this little kid, and, and Caleb takes his kid and he tosses him like 20 feet in the air, and the kid's all, ah, boom, and, he, and he's totally excited about why, because he trusts his dad. And even if your dad drops here, your dad, you know, you go another mile out there, it's like, oh my goodness, the boat has to come rescue, you're still like, I trust my dad, because that's what little kids are like, and that's the faith that we have in who God is and what he continues to do with and in us. It's that kind of faith. And that faith comes about by being humble people and not focusing on ourselves, what we think we are doing or or what we want. It comes about by focusing on him. And they would love to pray with you about stuff like that. It's a whole other sermon right there, sorry. Uh, There's offering boxes in the side wall on the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. Uh, We don't pass a plate. It's just a response to what he's done. And there's some cookies and stuff in the back earlier. We invite you to grab something to eat and maybe meet some other people. Because I'll tell you, we all need people in our lives who are willing to call us on our ishkadulness 
on our own self-madeness, on our own pride and our own arrogance. And not, not that it's bad to work hard and work well and build a good reputation and things like that, but when that becomes the end and the means in itself is when it's bad. And we need friends in our lives that can step into it and say, hey, buddy, you know, you need to get a little bit of humility in this. And if you don't have a friend who can do that, you don't have friends. I mean, it's, it's a hard place sometimes to allow a friend to have the ability to step in and say some very hard things to us. And this is what we always want our gospel communities to be, places where hard things can get said and, and an awful lot of joy can be lived in. And if you're not in a gospel community, I encourage you to, to sign up. We'll get somebody in touch with you. Uh, if it's still kind of weird for you, I still ask that you grab some of the notes, maybe meet with some friends or your family, kind of talk through some of those questions in there and just go a little bit deeper. Build deeper and lasting friendships because we worship God through our ability to love and connect with one another. That's part of worship. Guys, God has called us into amazing, amazing things. And I would encourage you to live in the grace and the goodness that he continues to provide. Have faith like a child. Have faith like a child. Live as a man or woman of God because of what he has done first for you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us and have us understand what it means to trust you as our Father that we would see the graciousness and the goodness of who you are and what you have done and what you continue to do. That we would live in this childlike faith where we understand that you have first saved and sought us and bought us and we would, we would live and do amazing things that would come out of our first, our trust in who you are. And that when things go crazy in our lives that we don't understand, we still know that you have us. That we are in your gracious and good hands. You are the God of everything and everybody and everywhere. And if you weren't there, there wouldn't be there. Have us live in that understanding of the all-encompassing power and goodness of you so that we would live lives that fully reflect you again in childlike faith and honest praise of all that you are and all that you've done. And we ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.